great to be with you today. I want to give a special shout out to those of you worshiping with us on Facebook Live. Maybe you're at Crossroads West. Uh, we are so excited you've joined us today as we begin this brand new series called uh, Fearless. And, and let me just give you a, a kind of recap and direction of where we're headed for the next several weeks in this series. All right, th- this is going to be a study in the uh, book of 1 Peter found in the Bible. And, and 1 Peter, just so you know, was written by one of Jesus' closest friends, Simon Peter. And it was written about 2,000 years ago, addressed to some followers of Jesus, some believers who were just facing adversity, conflict. And, and opposition in their life. I mean, they just couldn't get away from it. They turned their life over to Jesus. And, and maybe they had this moment where they thought that following Christ would actually lead to an easier life, but just the opposite happened. No, it only invited rejection. It invited adversity. And they had to think to themselves, just as you, you read throughout this book, you can't help but wonder, did, did, they, did they ask themselves, I mean, God, if, if you really are loving, if you really are powerful, if you really are absent of fear. What, why are you letting me go through this? What, why, why are you letting me go through this trial? You, you ever wondered that before? I want you to imagine with me for, for just a minute that, that you know, suppose, suppose your, your wife is pregnant with a baby girl. You're expecting a new child, okay? Now, some of you, that, that's scary in itself, but imagine that, that you're about to be a parent, maybe for the first time, maybe for the sixth time, whatever, and uh, uh, the, the baby has not been born yet, but, but somehow you were given this script of your, of your baby girl's life, okay? Now, you look as you open up this script at the different circumstances that she's going to walk through. This, it's a very thorough documentation of, of her future, of all that she's going to walk through, and, and all in all, she's going to live a pretty good life, but, but almost immediately, you, you narrow in on different circumstances that are a little bit challenging for her. You, you first notice that she's going to have a learning disability. I mean, reading for her isn't, isn't going to come easy. When she's about six years old, she's going to have a bike accident, and she's going to hurt her head, and that's going to uh, cause her to go into the doctor to get some stitches, and it's going to leave a scar that will remain on her face for a, a really long time. And she's going to go through, you know, uh, high school. She's going to feel betrayed by some friends at, at different moments in time. And she's going to work hard. She's going to get into the college of her dreams. But then when a few weeks into her first semester, she's going to walk through kind of a season of depression. She, she doesn't like life outside of home. It's, it's going to be an adjustment for her. After college, she, she gets married, but about five years in, she, she walks through a really painful divorce. Now, as you're reading through this script of her life and seeing all the trials that she's going to walk through, it, it might be a little bit discouraging, right? But suppose that, that, you're been, that you've been given an eraser to, to delete or uh, take out any circumstance or situation that she might walk through as a way to protect her from it, that you could take this eraser and, and delete any kind of challenge, any kind of circumstance that might be a season of real pain and grief for her. The question is, what, what circumstances w- would you take out of the script of her life? I mean, as, as moms and dads, our first tendency is to protect our children. We want their life to be rather easy. In fact, one of the reasons that uh, we are motivated to parent the way that we parent is because we walk through some challenges in our past. We don't want our kids to walk through what maybe we experienced. And, and so our first reaction would be to take that eraser, if this were even possible, and somehow delete and edit out some of the circumstances that our daughter would walk through that would inevitably lead to disappointment, frustration, pain, or, or grief, or, or loss, right? 
And, and I suppose that, that that's what would be easiest for her in, in the moment. I mean, none, none of us look forward to pain. We, we try to avoid trials at all possible costs, right? But, but let me ask you this. Is it possible... Is it possible that, that trying to, to cleanse or to uh, protect your daughter from a life absent of pain, from a life of absent any kind of disappointment or failure would actually be more harmful to her than, than good in the long run? Is that even possible? Now, one of the things that, that we read about in the Bible is that God is loving and he is powerful. And, and so some of us, we conclude that, that because he's this heavenly father, that's the image that, that we have of him, we conclude that, that God, if, if you are all powerful and you are all loving and, and you have this script of my life in your hands, why in the world did, did, you, not, did you not erase that moment? I mean, why didn't you protect me from, from that happening or, or going down that path or that relationship? I mean, God, if you really are who you say you are, why? You been there before? And you see, here's the thing. The, the original recipients that, that Peter was writing to in the first century, okay, were, were facing trial after trial, and, and they just came to this point in their life where like, God, we, we just don't even know what to do anymore. And they were paralyzed by fear because of the amount of adversity and rejection and, and suffering that they were encountering. And so that, that's where we're going to pick up today. That gives you a little bit of a background, okay? If you have your Bibles or Bible app, I want you to go ahead and turn uh, to the book of 1 Peter. If you don't own a Bible, there should be a Bible in front of you or below your chair. Uh, 1 Peter is at the, towards the back of your Bible in between the books of James and 2 Peter, okay? And uh, uh, as you're turning there, realize that in verse 1, it's really interesting, uh, Peter uh, first addresses and labels the recipients of this letter as, as exile. Some translations refer to them as aliens or, or foreigners in their world at the time, okay? Now, that seems a little bit odd, but he was simply acknowledging their reality. Let me ask you, have you ever felt like you don't fit in? You ever felt like, man, I'm just sticking out, I, I don't belong here, you know what I'm saying? I'll never forget uh, when my family moved here from Texas about five years ago. Uh, it, it was a little bit of an adjustment. I've shared with you from time to time different awkward things that people said to us. And I'll never forget our very first weekend here, I was introduced up on stage. Then after service, I was uh, in the back hallway just meeting and interacting with people. And uh, people were welcoming me. And uh, that one of the first ladies that came up to me, she, she said, hey, I, I want you to know that really glad you're here. She then said, I hear we're trying to be more diverse as a church. I guess that's why they hired you. Okay, Garcia, I mean, all right. No lie, no exaggeration whatsoever. The next lady wasn't nearly as tactful, okay? She said, hey, I, I just read an article this past week that talked about how there are more and more Mexicans moving to Evansville. They need to be reached. I guess you're the one to help us bridge that gap since you are one of them. I went home and said, Savannah, do not unpack those boxes, okay? Welcome. Hey, thanks. Right. You, you felt like that before? You felt like you don't fit in? Well, well, Simon Peter begins this letter by acknowledging, hey, I get it. You're a stranger. You feel like an alien, an exile. Verse 3, though, he, he takes a turn and he says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
And so right here from the outset, we learn that that, that moment that we trust Jesus, we give our life to him, we, we entrust our future to him, okay, we experience what's called a new birth. Now, that literally means that every past, present, and future sin, it loses its power over us. We're no longer defined by that. And so this imagery speaks to the fact that, that Jesus actually exchanged all of our sin, all of our brokenness, all of our mistakes, everything that we're not proud of. And in turn, he took that upon himself, but then gave us his righteousness, all of his purity, all of his morality, his blamelessness. That's why some theologians refer to that moment as the great exchange. It's not fair, but, but that's, that's what Jesus did for us. He actually projected and imputed his perfection onto us, even though we did nothing to to earn it. You see, our new birth means that we're not only a part of a new kingdom, but we're a part of now a new family with a totally different new order as far as how we're going to face and and, uh, perspective of life. And so we then read that that Jesus, this new birth that we have, gives us a living hope. What's, What's that all about? Now, hope is one of those words that we tend to use a lot, and if we're not careful, it it tends to lose its meaning whenever we read verses like this because we use it so much. We overuse the word and, and we kind of use the word hope to mean um, extreme optimism or maybe wishful thinking. And, and you see, the overuse of the word hope really helps, uh, doesn't really help us with verses like this because we fail to understand what it really means. We, we say things like, well, you know, I, I hope that I can afford that truck one day. I hope that he'll notice my haircut. I hope that my hair will, will stop thinning out. And so we interpret that word hope as wishful thinking. And so chances are when you read that we have this living hope as a result of this new birth from Jesus Christ, it doesn't inspire a lot of confidence because you just associate it with wishful thinking. But in the first century world, a living hope was so much more than that. The original meaning of that word in the Greek was absolute confidence, total certainty. The ancient world, you see, was full of just the opposite, dying hope. The world was full of dying hope because back then the, the, the object of worship, the most predominant uh, hope that, that was put in front of the people was the Roman Empire. All right, the emperor, believe it or not, was seen as, as, a, as a god, as a deity. And at this particular point in time, a guy by the name of Nero was in power over all the Roman world. And, and we know that Nero was just a psychopath. He was just a crazy dude. Apparently, he didn't get hugged enough by his dad growing up. He didn't win enough trophies in Little League, okay, because he, he had some serious issues. History tells us that he murdered just about everybody around him. After he failed to drown his mother, he, he ended up uh, strangling her, okay. We're also told that he executed many of his wives, He also executed, get this, his aunt by poisoning her with laxatives. Yeah, I can think of a lot of ways I want to go. Laxatives isn't one of them, right? I mean, that just stinks. (laughs) That was free. I threw that in there. Around 64 AD, though, we're also told that a fire began to ravage the city of Rome and it lasted for about a week or so, and, and when it was all said and done, this fire, this fire consumed about 75% of the city. And so after the fire was put out, people began asking, well, how did it start? Where, where did it begin? 
Well, we know that Nero actually started this fire himself for his own amusement. That's how twisted this guy was. And, and so when the rumors started swirling, when people started saying, hey, I saw, I saw the emperor out there. I saw him out there with gasoline. It, it, was, it was him. He knew that this wasn't looking good. And so he then dished the blame onto the church. He said, no, it was the Christians. It was the believers. They're the ones responsible. How about that for fake news? Okay, can you wonder what he was tweeting then? And so from that moment on... Persecution broke out against the church. That was Nero's way of of getting back at the Christians who refused to find living hope in him. Why? Because the believers knew that that he was dying hope. Rome, at the end of the day, was going to fall. It it was headed towards doom. It it wasn't going to last. And and so he took this so offensive, it was so personal, that that he, he then legalized persecution against the believers. And you see, it is so incredibly easy for us to misplace where our hope can be found. So often we confuse living hope for for maybe dying hope in our life. And and that's why we need to constantly be reminded that that our ultimate hope isn't found in government or a political party. Our ultimate hope isn't found in the amount of wealth we have or the security of our portfolio. Our ultimate hope isn't found in a title at work or getting into that corner office. Our hope isn't found in a, in a relationship. Our, our hope can't be found in any of those things. Do you know why? Because those are all dying hopes. And, and whenever we base and build our life upon a dying hope, it's only a matter of time until it's going to lead to emptiness. Therefore, the only thing and the only object worthy of our worship of finding it Hope in is the thing that will never die, will never perish, will never fade away, and that is Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ proved once and for all that, that not even death could hold him down. Therefore, he is worthy for us to find living hope in him and him alone. And so this kind of confidence that Peter was putting before these believers inspired them to remain fearless in the midst of opposition. You see, the only way for us to live a fearless life is to follow after a totally fearless God. The opposition that these Christians face caused them to scatter and run and, and live in different cities because they were guilty of treason. That, that's what Nero said. Many of them gave up businesses, wealth, and even inheritance to follow Jesus. That's why Simon Peter talked about the need to, to constantly live by faith all throughout this letter. Now, you see, it is totally impossible for us. It's totally impossible for us to live by faith and also live by fear. You can't live by faith and be motivated by fear. Fear and faith cannot coexist with one another. That's why a synonym for faith is the word fearless. Fearless is faith. Faith is fearless. Look at verses 4 and 5. Peter said that this, this new birth, you've been given into a living hope. It guarantees you an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith, are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. All right, here's the thing. A fearless life is rooted in the reality that the most important thing about you can't be touched. The most important thing about you, which is where you stand with Jesus, your belief about who God is, do you trust his promises? Do you believe he's gonna keep your word? Nothing can touch that. Nothing can harm it. Nothing can, nothing can take that from you. It can't be destroyed. You see, the cross of Jesus Christ actually calls us to be fearless because nothing we do or experience in this world can change where we stand with our creator. And so Peter's saying, hey, don't, don't forget that. That, that. That's what it's all about. Verse 6, 
Therefore, in, in all of this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while life really stinks. While you may have had to suffer grief in, in all kinds of, of trials. And so this is the part of the letter where, where Simon Peter challenged their perspective of the trials that they were enduring. He's writing to men and women who, who wish that the Lord would have known what was ahead of them, taken that script of their life and, and erased some things, deleted certain circumstances from their path. God, why, why, why didn't you intervene? You, you knew that this was on the script of my life, yet you kept it in front of me. And to be totally honest with you, some things, some things in life just don't, don't make sense. Difficulty and, and loss, at times there's not always an answer. But the reality is it, it does something to our faith. It does something to how we view God, how, how we trust in him, maybe in a positive way, maybe in a negative way. When you got ambushed by that phone call, those test results, that conversation with your boss, we immediately ask questions, right? We hate pain, we avoid trials, but if we're honest, our questions and anger towards God is really our way of expressing our need for deliverance from the trial that's before us. That's why Simon Peter goes on to say this in verse nine. He goes, hey, remember, you are receiving the end result of your faith, this is, this is where your life is headed, the salvation of your souls. And while God doesn't cause suffering, he sometimes allows it to happen. And so Simon Peter said that one of the reasons why God didn't take that eraser and delete certain circumstances from happening is because they were actually opportunities for these people to become even more fearless and to become stronger. You see, as their fear increased, it forced them to focus even more intently on a fearless God. Now, I wanna, I wanna stop right here and identify four ways that, that we might be delivered from trials in life that happen. And, and it doesn't go without saying that, that there are moments when we wish, we wish God would do something about what it is that we're going through. And, and I wish that I could stand up here and tell you, believe me, I, I wish I could say this, that, that if you had more faith, then, then it would lead to a safer, more comfortable life. That, that the, you know, the level of your faith determines the amount of comfort you experience in life and that you're guaranteed that your life will be fire free. But Jesus said, look, in this world, it's gonna stink. You're gonna have trials. A couple of days later, they nailed him to a cross. I think, I think he knows what he's talking about. And, and so God never promised to protect us or even deliver us outside of painful circumstances, but what he did promise us is that he would be with us through it. And so the deliverance sometimes that we want, may, it may not be the deliverance though that we need. You should know that some of these points have been inspired uh, by a Bible teacher by the name of Beth Moore, okay? And so when, the life, when life just feels like it's a raging fire, we can't get away from it, here's how deliverance may happen for us. Number one, sometimes you are delivered in the fire and your faith begins. Sometimes you're delivered in the fire and your, and your, faith, and your faith begins. Some believe that, that you know, if, if there is a God, he's either loving but not powerful or he's powerful but not loving. Because to be powerful, sovereign, and loving, and yet for the reality of wickedness to be so rampant in our world, those two can't coexist, right? And so that's why many just reject the God of the Bible. They, they believe, well, I believe there's a higher power out there. But if he really is who he says he is, then, then wickedness, evil, pain, it, it wouldn't be a reality in this world. Because either he's not worthy to be loved because he's not loving or he's not really in control. He didn't have the ability to foresee what was on the script of our life and he would have protected us, right? 20th century philosopher and scholar and writer uh, C.S. Lewis was um, one of the best thinkers in the 20th century. 
He taught at Cambridge and Oxford universities over in England. And at the age of 15, he was a professed atheist. Why? Well, because he saw all the evil and wickedness, war, famine, and all that. And he said, God, you can't exist. This is just, there's no way that a higher power could exist and allow this to happen. Well, as he grew up, as he matured in life, the very thing that caused him to reject God was actually the very thing that brought him back into faith. Because he came to this point where he said, you know what? I think that that wickedness and evil and pain is actually pretty strong evidence for God. Here's how he explains it in his book, Mere Christianity. He said, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust, but how had I gotten this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? That that can't be it because that's relativity, that's subjectivity. Of course I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. Catch this, but if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. You see, to acknowledge suffering is to recognize that we have been made with this ingrained standard of justice, of right and wrong. That's why many people turn to Jesus when their world comes crashing down. Pain tells us that we have a need we can't meet ourselves. Our family was uh, spending Thanksgiving with my side of the family, and uh, we hung out at my parents' house for the day. About two o'clock in the afternoon, I walked outside to start a fire with my nieces and and nephews. And uh, I'd been out there for about five minutes or so when my oldest sister ran out and she she said, hey, Patch, hey, Patch. She calls me Patch, I know, that's cute. All right, Bauer just put super glue in his eye. Now, Bauer's our two-year-old son and he had gotten hold of super glue and it was playing, I mean, why not? Why, Why not play with super glue, right? And so I ran inside the house. When I opened the door, Bauer was screaming. He was in so much pain. It took four adults to, to pin Bauer down on the, uh, on the countertop so that my dad could take a, a wet rag and wash the super glue uh, out of his eye. Now, a couple minutes later, he was perfectly fine. It, it was as if nothing ever happened. He was totally cool from, from that moment on. Now, my oldest sister, who's also a pediatrician, she told me that, you know, as painful as that was to hear him screaming, the fact that Bauer felt pain was a really good thing. What do you mean by that? She said, well, whenever he took that bottle of super glue and he, he stuck it in his eye, that initial jolt of pain, something's not right, caused his, his brain to react by shutting his eyelid. Now, had he been numb, had he not felt the pain, his, eye would have, his eyelid would have remained open and super glue would have gotten all over his eye, his cornea, and he could have really damaged his eyesight and possibly have lost his eyesight altogether. You see, pain is our way of our nerve sending signals and messages to our brain Saying, hey, something's not right here. We react, protect yourself. It's a good thing because if, again, if if Bauer were numb, it could have been a lot worse. And I I don't know what you're going through right now. But I do know that, yes, God God could have protected you from from what it is that you're walking through. God, God could have numbed you to these circumstances. He he could have shielded you from it. He could have deleted it from the script of your life, but, but he didn't. And while this may not just make things better overnight, it may not be a, a button to, uh, to press right now, the, the reality is, reality is that, that possibly he allowed this pain to happen so that you would see his need, so that you would see your need for him. If we constantly walked around numb, is it possible that, that we would walk around life thinking that we're it? And in turn, living out this dying hope. You see, trials, trials show us that 
Sometimes we've mistaken a dying hope for, for living hope. Job was a guy in the Bible who experienced many trials, just overnight lost his family, kids, portfolio, job, everything. He asked God, why? Why'd you let this happen? I mean, come on, you, you could have spared me from this. And he walked through this intense season of grief. Finally, God responds to him, doesn't really give him the answer that he wants. But after he has that conversation with God and, and after he's delivered from trials, he, here's what Job was able to say. Talking to God, he said, I'd only heard about you before. It was only in my mind, but now I've seen you with my own eyes. Right, this, this pain has actually caused me to experience you, to see even more that, that you can be trusted. And sometimes deliverance from grief comes in the form of, of belief and faith. And, and learning to trust Jesus may not be the deliverance that, that you expected, but for some of us, for some of us, the only way for God to get your attention is to let you hit rock bottom. Sometimes the, the deliverance that we need, it, it's not always the deliverance that we want. Here's the second thing. Sometimes you were delivered from the fire and your faith is verified. Okay, this describes those moments when you see smoke, all right, you see the storm clouds just swirling, you know something is on the horizon, it's not good, and, and so it causes you to, to pray, God, help me, intervene, do something about this. And you know what, to your surprise, you didn't think it was gonna happen, but God listened, God responded, and you thought that the test results were gonna reveal one thing, but it came back benign, or charges weren't pressed, or he came back home, and, and you were spared from a really difficult trial, you were spared from intense suffering, and, and I wish it always worked out that way, but it doesn't. But maybe for you, when that happened, it, it only solidified your faith even more. Okay, God, you, you are listening. Your faith was verified. Here's the third, third perspective through trial. Sometimes you are delivered through the fire and your faith is refined. Sometimes you're delivered through the fire and your faith is refined. It's not always clear, again, why God allows suffering and things to happen. And unfortunately, we're not always certain when deliverance from the fire is going to happen. But when pain seems to linger and God walks with us through the fire, we have the chance to come out on the other side of it more fearless than before. Look at verse seven in our text. As Peter explained what deliverance through the trials that they were going through looked like. Look, these have come, these trials have come to you so that the, so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Now, that word genuineness right there means to be tested or, or to put through a crucible. Peter compared walking through the fire with this process by which gold was purified. In the ancient world, this was a rather tedious process. Or you, you would go out and, and you had to find gold somewhere in the ground or, or maybe mine for it in, in the river. And after sifting through the gold and separating it from all the dirt and, and all the sand, you would then crush and then break down the different little particles of gold. The gold was then placed inside a, a clay vessel. You would then take that clay vessel, put it in an oven-like mechanism, and it would sit there for, for several days as it heat up and, and the gold would then merge together, completely melting away all of the impurities. This process took about five days long. It, it was extremely long. And so it's as if Peter used this metaphor right here to say, hey, look, remember, remember that, that when Jesus Christ stepped foot into this world, it was like, he, it was like he, he stepped foot in a bunch of dirt, a bunch of mess, a bunch of brokenness. As a result, he... He can cleanse, he can wash away all of your sins. Not only secures your eternity, but, 
from that moment that you choose to trust Jesus until your funeral, understand that it's going to feel like you've been put in this vessel, you've been put through a crucible because you might face trial after trial after trial. And in this process, we, we learn that Hey, maybe we've been putting our hope in something that's dying rather than something that's living. I mean, there's something about trials that make us realize we've been finding our identity, worth, and significance in maybe all the wrong places. Or you don't know that, that you were living for something until that very thing was taken from you. I mean, maybe you didn't know how much your, your job meant to you and was a part of your identity and until, until your job was taken from you, right? I mean, you didn't know how much... You were finding your significance, worth, and value in a relationship until the breakup happened. You, you didn't know how much your value was all about what was in your garage or, or the kind of neighborhood that you lived in. And until you hit hard times, you had to sell off those things. You, you didn't know how much joy you were finding in your college basketball team until your favorite coach was fired before the season began and you went from being preseason top 10 to now totally unranked. Anybody want to start a sport group, huh? Just speaking for a friend, okay? The book of Hebrews was first written to some Christians who'd been just paralyzed by fear. The writer goes so far to say that, look, the trials you're going through, you should view them as discipline. Discipline's not a word that, that we sign up for. It's not a word that we like, right? A discipline is a form of training for something specific, though. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. The writer says, hey, endure hardship as discipline. I know life is hard, but God is treating you as his own children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but it's really painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for, for those who have, been, who have been trained by it. Back in the 90s, uh, conservationists were really concerned about the lack of aspen trees that were growing in Yellowstone National Park. That There were no trees. They couldn't figure out why. Well, after they did some research, they, they came to a conclusion of what might help solve this problem. And so from 1995 to 1996, they, they reintroduced wolves back into the park. Now, I know what you're thinking. What in the world do aspen trees and wolves have to do with trees growing? Well, you see, wolves had been hunted and there was literally no wolves left in the park. And, and so they, they realized that, that aspen trees were there, the roots were there, and, and they tried to grow. But at that time, elk had totally taken over the park. And, and so the, there was an overpopulation of elk. And so when these trees would sprout and begin to grow, elk would come along and uh, nibble away at the leaves or the branches, keeping these trees from growing. It, it kind of suffocated them and therefore the tree would just die off. So 20 years later, after introducing those wolves, there are aspen trees now all around the park because the wolves have provided this balance and it's actually been for the greater good of the park. They've been able to, to hunt off all these elk and, and control the population. And, and so now you see all these trees growing up everywhere. And you know, sometimes, sometimes our trials are, are kind of like wolves, right? And when you see the wolf coming, I mean, you, you naturally want to run. You want to hide. You, you want to cover yourself up. You, you want to avoid it. And yet what, what sometimes we fail to see in the moment is that the, is that the wolf is exactly what, we, it's exactly what we need. It's for our greater good. 
I've been learning lately that when life doesn't go my way or I'm ambushed by something or the fire just seems to, to rage on and on and on, my immediate reaction is to start asking questions. And the very first question I tend to ask is, is why me? God, this shouldn't be happening. I mean, I, I don't deserve this. I play the victim card. You know what? I've been learning that, that when I throw a pity party, the only person to show up is myself. Nobody else really cares nor should care. And really, when I play the victim card, it's my own kind of dark way of trying to get atten- attention. It's, it's really how my selfishness is exposed. And so rather than asking why me, I, I'm learning to ask God, what, what are you trying to teach me right now? I, life stinks right now. It's not what I wanted, but how are you refining me through this? How can I learn to be more fearless because of what you're allowing to happen right now in my life? So sometimes deliverance doesn't come in, in, from, or through the fire. And if that doesn't happen, the perspective, the last perspective of our trials may go like this. Sometimes you were delivered by the fire and your faith is complete. Or sometimes we're delivered from suffering by the source of suffering itself. And while this is what most of us tend to resist or avoid, our fearless God promises that, you know what? The fire's not gonna win. The storm won't have the final say. The first century Christians needed to be assured that that Rome wouldn't be victorious in the end. No, Rome was a a dying hope. But but Jesus, who they were living for, was a living hope. He, He is what mattered for all of eternity. Rome was just days away from falling completely. And, and they needed to be reminded of that confidence that was before them. Mary Beckworth has been a part of our church for some time now. And 11 years ago, she was diagnosed with a pretty aggressive form of, of breast cancer. She, she had been in and out of remission, but about four years after her initial diagnosis, so this was about seven years ago, the doctors told her that her cancer had come back and it was at a stage four. It, it had spread all throughout her body. This past week when, when I talked with her, I, I asked her what, what it was like when she faced the brutal facts of her condition. I mean, what, talk me through that day. She said, well, Patrick, you know, I remember it clearly. My husband, Henry, and I came home from the doctor. We went into our bedroom. We were both just kind of silent. It didn't make sense. We, we were shocked by it. And, and I got to be honest with you. At first, I was really angry. I was frustrated. I started out, God, why, why did you let this happen? And as she sat on her bed, she said, I, I then made a switch. I then, began, I then began telling God, okay, if this is the path that you have for me, it's not the path that I would have chosen, but it's the path that I will walk down because I know, I know that, that you will be with me. And you know, the thing that has sustained Mary through all these years, she, she has such a positive attitude. She's been leading one of our cancer support groups on Monday nights at our Newburgh campus. She loves helping other uh, men and women who are struggling with the same uh, kind of uh, disease cope with the reality of, of what's ahead. And she's just that person that's always pouring herself out to others. Now, living with stage four cancer, you have to understand that, that every day she wakes up with the reality that, that it's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time until this, this illness takes over and my body's gonna give up. Last week after service, she tracked me down and she said, hey, she said, hey, Patrick, I need to talk with you. Can we set up a meeting? She didn't tell me what it was about and she didn't need to because I already knew. Come to find out, she, she told me, she said, Patrick, I, 
I think, I think I'm near the end of my race. And as I tried to interrupt her and say, oh, Mary, I'm, I'm so sorry. I've been praying for you. I, I hate that you're having to walk through this. She cut me off. She said, oh, oh Patrick, don't, don't feel sorry for me. This isn't the path that I would have chosen. And at times I've wondered why God would allow this to happen. She said, but I, I don't have any complaints. And then she said this. She said, I, I rest in the hope knowing that, that my cancer is not gonna win. Now, who says that? How do you, how do you have that, that kind of fearlessness in the face of, of death? Well, it's because Mary, Mary knows that a fearless God is actually carrying her through this, even when she has every reason to be afraid, even when she has every reason to worry, to doubt, to complain. She knows that a fearless God is before her because that fearless God promises victory for her. And the thing that just seems to be weighing her down, it's not going to have the final say. It will not define her. It will not hold her back from what's most important. And yes, this fire stinks, but it's going to be the fire that will deliver her to the reality of her faith. And in that moment, her faith will be made complete. I don't know what you bring to the table today. I don't know what kind of trial you have before you, but, but I, I wonder, do, do you need to be reminded that, that the God we serve, the God that offers to walk with you through this is fearless. And, and the more we focus on him, the, the more fearless we actually become as well. He never promised to, to protect us from the trial. He never promised to, to you know, shield us from the fire or, or to take us around the storm, but he did promise, hey, I'll walk with you through it. And why is that? Well, because we know that, that Jesus is greater. And so maybe you need to be told today that, that Jesus is greater than your tension right now you're experiencing in your marriage. Jesus is greater than your divorce. Jesus is greater than your DUI. Jesus is, is greater than your anxiety about school. He's greater than your uncertainty about how the medical bills are gonna get paid. He's, he's greater than the, the conflict you're having with your kids or, or the uh, difficulty you have right now with your foster kids or, or your stepchildren. You're trying to make that work. Jesus, he's greater than all of that. When we take all of our failures, our pain, our disappointment, to him, the byproduct is, is that we end up fearless in life. You see, Jesus, he's greater. He's greater. You know, one of the the biggest highlight moments for, for Jesus was right before he faced what he feared most or what he was tempted to fear most and that was going to the cross. He had every, he could have, he could have run, he could have avoided it, he could have done whatever it took to, to not face that really painful circumstance. And one of the biggest misconceptions about Jesus is that he was a victim and that, you know, he lost a power struggle between he, the Romans and the religious authorities and, and he, he had to, uh, he lost this fight and, and so that's why he went to the cross and let me be really clear about something, okay? Nobody put Jesus on the cross. Jesus put himself there. And Jesus never, never lost control. He always had authority. Now, how do I say that? By what authority do I say that? Well, according to John's biography on the life of Jesus, we read about this moment. It's a really interesting detail that most of us tend to skip over, overlook. It, when they go to arrest Jesus, the Roman soldiers, they ask him, hey, hey, are, are you Jesus? Are, are, you the, are you the son of God? And, and he simply responds by saying, I, I am he. Well, John says that when he responded with that, all of the Roman soldiers fell to their feet at once. They couldn't, st- they couldn't stand up. Now, these were not 
you know, rent-a-cops. These weren't mall security guards. These were the special forces of Rome's elite army. And in that moment, all it took was for Jesus to say, I am he, I'm in control. You aren't taking anything from me. No, I, I'm surrendering myself and I can take it back whenever I want. Jesus always had authority. He never, he never lost control. Here's why I tell you that. Because of what Jesus endured the, the several hours later when he went to the cross, ultimately walked out of his tomb, crashed his own funeral, it gives us the confidence of knowing that one day our cancer, it's gonna fall before Jesus in his very presence. The, the trial that we're walking through, it, it's not gonna win. It, it's simply gonna fall flat right before the authority of Jesus. Why? Because he is greater. And when we keep our eyes on a fearless God, we can proceed forth knowing we don't have to fear. We don't have to be afraid. What we want has already been accomplished. And in the end, every pain, every struggle, every suffering, every tear, every, every source of difficulty, it's gonna fall before Jesus and we will be assured and know for a fact that Jesus is greater. Let's, let's pray. God, a lot of us right now are walking through some stuff that give us every reason to be afraid, worried, we're anxious, we're frustrated, got a lot of anger, I, I don't know what it is. But there are a lot of things on our mind right now and, and Lord, would you just remind us more than ever that we can be fearless if, if we simply look to you because fearlessness, it doesn't happen by us trying harder. Fearlessness doesn't happen by us, you know, doing things right. No, no fearlessness happens by keeping our eyes on you and reminding ourselves that, that you are with us even when it seems like you, you've overlooked us. And so God, thank you that, that you are a God who wasn't absent of suffering, but you actually ran towards it so that suffering wouldn't end us. Help us to remember that. Help us to, to live in that reality as we go to work, as we go to school, as, as we live our lives, because God, you, you are fearless. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.